What about Matt? What is it? About us being small. Matt says us being small Greatness. because Hashem is big, mm-hmm. right? And then we started speaking about two aspects of matzah. Right. Then remember what the differences are between the two matzahs. First off, when were the two matzahs? Midnight. Midnight and midnight. Nope. 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 Before midnight. Before midnight and after midnight. Midnight. No, midnight was when Hashem revealed himself and the Jewish field became free. And midday is when they physically left Egypt. So the matzah was eaten both before midnight and then the dough they took out of Egypt was matzah, and that's the matzah from after midnight. Okay. What are the differences between the matzahs? I gave you a list, I think, of five things, yes? Mm-hmm. Anyone remember? Or is it in their notes? The dough didn't have enough time it was to rise. By I actually said that if the dough didn't have enough time to rise and they walked out with it in their sacks in the sun, it probably would have turned into hummus, right? So one was commanded by Hashem, which was commanded by Hashem? The matzah before midnight. Matzah before We were commanded to eat the matzah. Yes. And the matzah after midnight was not commanded. Okay, what are the consequences? The fact that it was commanded had implies three things. One, you, you have to choose to obey. You have to actually actively choose to obey. Whereas the matzah after midnight was incidental. It just mm-hmm. happened on its own. What else? Purpose. Right? If Hashem commanded, it's purposeful. Whereas the matzah after midnight was just the result of something. It wasn't directed at something. And the matzah, if it's being commanded, that means Hashem is exercising his what? What do you need to have in order to issue commands? Authority. Authority, right? So the matzah before many is exercise Hashem's authority. The matzah after midnight, not. Okay? Also, the matzah before midnight, they had to protect it to make sure it didn't become chametz. Whereas the matzah after midnight didn't have the opportunity to become chametz, right? Just chametz wasn't on the table. And there's a spelling difference. What is the spelling difference? Vav. Vav. Which matzah has the vav? The after midnight. After midnight. After midnight. After midnight. Okay. Now we started speaking about two kinds of greatness. And the analogies that we had were a king and a righteous person, right? And what makes a king greater than regular people? They're subjects, right? And so you can measure kings based on how many subjects they have. So I have zero subjects, so I'm not much of a king. And some kings have many subjects, and those subjects are very different and very far away, and that shows, and very loyal, that shows that they're a greater king. And the presence of someone of that kind of influence, one feels small. But then there is a righteous person, right? What does it mean that a person is really righteous? Okay, but let's first talk, what, what, what differentiates the righteous person from the rest of us? I gave, we spoke about two things. Mm. Can you bribe a righteous person? No. Why not? Anything you value, they don't. Right, whatever you're going to give them as a bribe is not even appealing to them, right? And why does a righteous person do good things? Because they're good, right? They don't need, they don't, there's no need to justify, right? The fact that we need principles to prevent us from doing the wrong thing, right? And we need values in order to motivate us to do the right things is because on some level we're ambivalent about good and evil. Mm-hmm. Right? As the Pasuk says, um, that, that to really hate evil comes out of one's genuine love for Hashem. Right? So, so these people, they're living in a transcendent place. And the, how does one feel if you encounter such a person like that and you sense that they're living in this entirely different plane? How do you feel relative to them? Small. 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 But is it a measurable difference? Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to now move on to a physical analogy. Okay. What is the difference between the sun and a candle as opposed to sun, sunlight, and darkness, or any light and darkness. So the candle sheds a little bit of light, right? But if we take the candle out into the midday sun, right? For instance, right now, if you were to take a candle, light a candle, take the flame outside, stand outside the street, would that contribute any light? No. Moreover, if you pay attention, you'll notice that the flame actually casts a shadow. It turns out that as much as the flame is exuding light, it's actually blocking more of the sunlight than it's exuding of its own. 
So the flame, which is itself a source of light, relative to the sunlight, seems dark. Seems inconsequential and actually in a deeper sense even dark. But we all recognize that that's only because of the presence of the sunlight. Remove the presence of the sunlight and the flame shines light. The flame is very significant, right? On the other hand, right, once you encounter light, you recognize that darkness is just an absence. There's just a fundamental lacking in darkness. So if you encounter a king, you're like, oh, this person has greater influence than I do, right? I have very little influence. This person has tremendous influence. So they're greater than When you encounter a righteous person, there's a sense what they're living is somehow the truth. And therefore, based on that, I've discovered that what I'm living is somehow false and dark. And that, you know, feels very um, humbling, to put it mildly. Right? So you see the difference? These are both senses of smallness, but one is different than the other. The first type, the type of the king or the king... Is where it, it's one is measured against the other, and it comes out small. And the other is that you can't even measure it because it, it turns out that you have what you, 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 there's no legitimacy to the way a, a regular person lives their life. It's too crass. It's too animalistic. Too self-centered to be considered genuine living as someone in the image of God. Once you've encountered the truth as embodied in the life of a righteous person, much like once you discover what light is, you realize darkness is, a, is an emptiness. Okay, so now, which type of greatness does Hashem have? Does he have the greatness which is a measurable greatness and therefore we are small in comparison or is his greatness a kind of absolute greatness and therefore we are completely um, insignificant and I don't want to, illegitimate. Invalidated or illegitimate, but although I want to be careful about that because that can has negative connotations. I'm trying to translate from the Hebrew. The, the actual Hebrew term is what's called heder tfisa smokin ba'atzme, which literally translates translates as lacking place, um, lacking lacking place um, within oneself. Meaning that you're not, there's no place for you in your own sense of reality. Yeah, that's a weird expression. It makes sense in Hebrew. That's why I was trying to think of how to say it. So don't worry so much about the, the term. Think about, again, the analogy. The anal- you know, however you would phrase that in the analogy is good enough. Okay, so what makes God greater than us? He's a God. He's a God? Yeah. What does that mean? Creator is okay. greater than creation. Very good. He's the creator. So which kind of greatness is that? Is that like analogous to the king or the righteous person? The king. Like the king. Right? As creations, we have very little influence over reality. As the creator, he has tremendous influence over reality, right? And we, does, he have, does he have complete influence or is it... Yes, complete. Because being a creator means that um, you are the sole cause of things. When we actually influence things, we're never the sole cause. Okay. Um, and, but think about it. The, the grander God's creation, the more impressive he is, right? The more, if you understand the metaphysics behind creation, right? The more you appreciate the, the, the depth of the wonder of the act of creation itself, the greater God is, right? In other words, you can take creation as a phenomena and understand it on any different level you want, and the greater your understanding of it, the greater God will seem to be. Right? And just like we spoke about like the person who's lifting weights, there's two elements here. One is the more weights you can lift, the stronger you are, and then the other is the less effort you need to lift those weights, the stronger you are. Right? So what happens if you reflect upon the fact that all of the wonder and all of the um, awesomeness that we find in the act of creation for God is actually effortless. That makes him seem even greater still. Okay? But the point is we're using the act of creation, the reality of the creation, 
the wonder, the beauty, the depth, whatever, whatever adjective you want to use, of the creation as the thing that we are anchoring our sense of God's greatness in. And he obviously measures very highly in that standard, and we correspondingly measure very small in that standard. I, I want to talk about the most minimal level of this. If God is the creator, and we are the creation, what does that mean in terms of responsibilities? Okay, so let's first let's talk briefly. What is responsibility? I am responsible for X, or you are responsible for Y. What is that? What is that idea of responsibility that we're making reference to there? So if I'm responsible for X, it means I have a greater understanding of X. Let's use a concrete example. Give me something that you're responsible for. Your actions. You're responsible for your actions. Okay. Now I'm going to change the question slightly. Give me some, give me, change it from something you're responsible for to a question of, give me something you're responsible to. It's a slightly different use of the word, right? Mm-hmm. They're not unrelated ideas, but what does it mean to be responsible? I'm responsible for something, but I'm responsible to someone. What does it mean responsible to? You answer to something. That's right. So many times when people say I'm responsible for my actions, there's then a separate question, which is whom am I responsible to? If I, let me give you a simple example. Let us say I fail to do something. And I have to take responsibility for that, right? I'm responsible for my actions and I fail to do something. Who do I have to bring that up with? Who do I have to turn to and and face up? Myself. Uh, Well, that means because I sense that I was responsible. I was responsible for this thing, but I'm responsible to myself. So let us imagine that you are employed and you are supposed to do something and it didn't happen. So you just need to like be honest with yourself about it that you should have done better and you can move on in life, right? Yeah. Why not? You're also responsible to the person you're working for. You're responsible person you're working for, right? Okay, so you see there's a kind of these two dimensions of responsibility. There's what am I responsible for and who am I responsible to? Let's, let's, let's um, tease these apart. What I'm responsible for means that at the end of the day, whether this happens or it doesn't happen, I have to be in charge of that. Okay? If it works out well, Good, and if it doesn't work out well, I take ownership of that. Yeah. But then there's a question, a separate question is, the significance of that success or failure, the significance of that taking ownership, is that, who does that pertain to? Who does that relate to? So if I'm responsible to someone, that means they're, they're saying, this was important to me and you were supposed to take care of it, and now that you have or haven't done it, that, that, that matters to me. That's a very different sense of responsibility when the one I'm responsible to is just merely myself. Does this make sense, the difference between these two things? There's two elements of responsibility? Okay. So now, um, I'll tell you a story of responsibility. Um, There were a bunch of Bachram who wanted to go to a wedding. They were, they were learning in a yeshiva in Canada and they wanted to drive to New York for a wedding. And um, they asked their teacher, the yeshiva permission, and the teacher said, no. And what did the Bachram do? They went. they went anyway. <laughs> and they got in a car accident and the van flipped over. Oh. And Baruch Hashem, everyone was okay. The Rosh yeshiva was very upset when he found out about this. 
and he storms into like the you know, or the, where the, the staff room is and he says, who gave them permission? Who do these bachas think they are just going, renting a car and driving without getting permission first? And their teacher said, I gave them permission. Now, did he give them permission? So why would he say that? He's responsible for them? He's responsible for them. They're my, these are my bachas, right? <clears throat> You know, if you have a problem, Mr. Rosh Hashiva, with what happens with the Bachram, right? Well, that means you have a problem with me. They're my Bachram, right? I'm responsible for these Bachram. Now, between him and the Bachram, it's a different discussion, right? Okay? He's saying, in other words, I am responsible for these Bachram, and I have responsibility to the Yeshiva for these Bachram. If the Bachram messed up, then it's between me and the Yeshiva. It's not between the Yeshiva and the Bachram. That's what means to be responsible for them, right? Okay? So, there's a certain sense of responsibility that has to be cultivated and has again these two elements. What are you responsible for and who are you responsible to? Okay, now, if God is the creator and we're the creation, which way does the responsibility go? Who's responsible for what and who's responsible to who? I'm responsible for the world and I'm responsible for the world. Responsibility is on us. We have to think about why this is. Responsibility is on us. We are responsible to Hashem for what? For what? We're responsible for having been created. Okay, right. So, for, so for whatever purpose we play in the world, right? So, some degree of ourselves and some degree of the world. Okay, let's think about this. If, if God creates the world, um, is there any like reason that He has to do things a certain way, or He has to keep the world in existence? No. Right. He's not, right? And I would even go so far as say he's not even responsible to himself. I mean, I took this cup of water, I put it over here. Like, okay, I did it. Like, you know, not everything has that responsibility involved. And he did something. God created the world. Okay, he could create the world. He could stop creating the world. It's up to him. Right? Now, God creates the world and he puts us in the world, right? And one of the aspects of our creation is he gives us purpose to which we have the, we have, unlike other things which their purpose is kind of built in, our purpose is something that we have to decide to achieve, right? Decide to fulfill. So that means we are responsible for fulfilling our purpose. And who are we responsible to? Who designated that as that purpose as significant? Hashem. So we are responsible to Hashem for fulfilling our purpose, yeah? Mm-hmm. So if I reflect on the fact that He's the creator and I'm the creation, and the aspect of why being created is purposeful with some degree of self-control on my part, some degree of self-determination on my part, whether to fill that purpose, well then what follows from that is a defining feature of, of my existence relative to God is that I'm responsible to God for fulfilling my purpose. That's a kind of smallness vis-a-vis God, that I'm responsible to him for whatever it is I'm responsible, right? And I have to, okay? Now, there's other kinds of smallness too, but you see like, so you can take this idea that God is the creator and we're the creation and, and think through what, are, what does that mean about his greatness and our relative smallness and come up with different notions, okay? Now, in what sense is God great and we're small that has nothing to do with, that, that can't be measured, it's not comparable? Wait, what about this is measurable? Well, for instance, if I hire you, to do something, you're responsible to me for the thing that I hired you for, right? But there's a limit to that responsibility because all we're talking about is your voluntary participation in my company, right? Or whatever it is, right? But if God creates you out of nothing for an explicit purpose, then does that purpose not define the totality of your existence? So are you not defined now by that responsibility? So the responsibility is much greater and so the need to submit your will to his will is much stronger. And so you are much relatively smaller. You as a creation, purposeful creation of God are smaller than God than an employee is smaller than their employer because at the end of the day, that is very limited, right? And voluntary. You, you like, oh, I'm, I'm willing to take this responsibility in exchange for a certain kind of payment or whatever. 
not the same. By the way, a lot of our problems in life come because we feel like we work for God, and you know, rather than we feel like we were created by God for a purpose. And so our sense of acceptance of his will, acceptance of his yoke, is, is lacking because we, we relate to him as like, you know, God's my employer. And he, like, you know, he does stuff for me and then in exchange I'll take certain responsibilities for him and that's, that's not true. And then you can go much deeper. Like you could be in awe of the greatness of God and feel this tremendous privilege that something as puny as a human being could actually serve a meaningful purpose for a being as grand as God, right? That's, that's, that's taking it in a different direction. Right. There's a lot you can do with this. Um, and what's the right way to do about it? There is no right way. Everybody's unique. Everybody's different. Right? But using the idea that God is the creator gives us some degree of a sense of in what way is he greater than me? In what way am I smaller than him? And what follows from that in terms of my, my needing validation and defining legitimacy in his eyes and not the other way around. Okay, what way is God greater than us that's kind of an absolute greatness? It's not uh, measurable. Okay, elaborate. Um, relative to our understanding of our existence, we have no, there's no relation to what God is existing. And how so? Explain. Um, well, I guess it seems similar to the idea of creation, but we were created. Mm-hmm. Our existence is contingent upon God. Mm-hmm. Right, and so if our existence is contingent on his and his existence is contingent on nothing then can we be even said to exist in the same sense for instance if there was no purpose that justified our creation would we exist does God need a purpose to justify his existence right so now you're not reflecting on the fact that God is the creator and what that means. You're just thinking that you're reflecting kind of on the inverse. If God is not, if God is not a creation and we are, it's a kind of a, it's a different thing, right? God is, God is real in a way that none of us could ever be real. And once you have a sense of that degree of reality, then you can't really take yourself as real anymore. Okay. Now, what is our limitation? Right, Egypt is a limitation, right? What is our limitation? Yes, but I don't think you mean what I mean. Can you... escape the fact that you are a created being. You are, your existence is contingent. Your existence has to have a purpose. You depend on the creator. Can you escape the limitations of what it means to be a creature created by God? No. Okay. Let us imagine for a moment you have a pet rock. That's cute. Why is that cute? It's not a pet. Can you as a person, can you as a person give yourself the kind of significance, the kind of truth, the kind of reality that God has on his level? No. But can God decide that he is going to relate to you as if you're somewhat of an equal to him? Can he choose to kind of relate to you on a level beyond the limitations of the creation? Yeah. Okay. So this is what, it, this is, the idea is like this. Chassidus explains that the basic limitation is that a creation is limited by the fact that they're a creation and therefore God always for a creation is like on the other side of the horizon. God is the creator, God provides influence, God plays a very important function. But at the end of the day, you, you can't really have a, a, a genuine connection to God 
because you're so radically different. God's reality is of a different order than our reality. What it means that God is real, is not dependent, is not contingent, doesn't derive meaning from outside of itself, etc., etc., etc. And to be a creation means that you are limited and you do depend on other things and you do derive meaning from things outside yourself. And just, we're so incomparable and so unalike, there's no way for a creation to really genuinely um, relate to God on God's level. But that's a limitation of, of, of the creation. Now, have you ever heard of an expression that the Jews are an eternal people? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little bit of story. There was a Jew, his name was Menachem Begin. You heard of Menachem Begin? Mm-hmm. So Menachem Begin went to New York for um, very important uh, international conference dealing with the security of the state of Israel. He was the Prime Minister of Israel. And before he went to Washington for this important conference, they keep turning it off, and they keep turning it on. I walk into class and hit the things button, and it's the wrong word off in the previous class. Okay, the so he made a stop in New York to visit the Rebbe, um, and he spoke with the Rebbe privately and also with other people around. Privately, what do they speak about? Anyone know? Nobody knows. The Rebbe never said, and he never said. What? Yeah, he said why he was going. He said he was going to, he said why he was going, that before he was going to go meet with the Gentiles, he was going to speak with the Rebbe, as the Rebbe is the leader of the Jewish people. He, he said why he went, and, and they spoke with other people in the room, and cameras in the room, but then they spoke privately. So one thing that he said, though, when he was being interviewed about speaking with the Rebbe, and I don't remember if it was right before he spoke with the Rebbe, right after he spoke with the Rebbe, he, he said that we want the advice of the Rebbe, there's the leader of the Jewish people, and he says, I'm not going to say that these are fateful talks. These are very important conference, whatever, and international things. These are not, I'm not going to say that these are fateful talks because the Jewish people are an eternal people, and so there's no such thing as a fateful talk, but they are important talks. Now, what did he mean when he said the Jewish people are an eternal people and there's no such thing as a fateful event? He made a very, that's a very radical statement. And he, he was not like, you know, like a, uh, a, a fluffy person when he's. What does it mean? The Jews are an eternal people, so there's no such thing as a fateful event for the Jewish people. Fateful talks, fateful conferences, a fateful war, there's no such thing. What makes something a fateful occurrence? If it's existence, Correct. Right. You know, a fateful battle means if you lose the battle, you could go out of existence. Right? This is this a very this decision about this company. Are we going to go bankrupt and collapse or are we going to survive, right? So what do you think? He's like, yeah, there's nothing that can really happen that will ever destroy us as Jews. So like, it doesn't mean this isn't important, but it's not fateful. That's a very bold thing to say, right? He's saying, he's saying right? You know, it's like the 70s or something, the national press. He's saying, the Jewish people can't be destroyed. So like the whole like intensity of this thing should be like toned down a notch, but it's still important because it's important. I wanted to consult with the Rebbe. Now, does that make sense that there should be something that is a creation that just it can't be destroyed because it can't? Does that make any sense? No, no that should be a feature of God, right? So if a, if there is a people that is truly an eternal people, then somehow they have transcended limitations of being a creation. How? How relevant is a mitzvah? How significant is a mitzvah? When a Jew does a mitzvah, how significant is that? It's infinitely significant. How long does it continue to have a positive effect on the world? Forever. Is there any way that makes sense that a limited being should be able to do something of infinite significance and eternal relevance? Right? So there's this notion that as Jews, we have been lifted out of limitation of being a creation of God. Even though we still live in this world and we still you know, deal with all sorts of limitations, but we're not defined by those limitations. We can be beyond those limitations. And that's why, just let me finish, that's why the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt, really is half of the story. What's the other half of the story? You know, take out, let my people go so that... They could serve me. Where, where, what was that reference to? The giving of the Torah, Harsinai, right? So leaving Egypt 
is the stepping away from being defined as a creature, as a creation, as a limited being, so that we can receive what it means to be a truly unlimited being, a divine being, an eternal being. Okay? So now, yes? What does that have to do with my pet rock? Because <laughs> your pet rock, it's silly that you would have a pet rock. Why? Because you and the rock... No, no yeah, they're so incomparable in the level of your being, right? So that God would have a relationship on the divine level with a creation is more ridiculous. So the rock would have to somehow leave the limitations of what it is to be a rock to, if you like, genuinely have a... Oh. Yeah. So, God would have a rock as a pet. Like you're infinitely... Yeah, you're, somehow the rock has transcended its rockness if you could really, you could really relate to it on, on a human level, right? I don't think you should try that. <laughs> there are things that are cute when you're like five and that stop being cute when you're an adult. You know, it's like, it's like when you say Pischetti. It's fine when you're three. When you're 30, you're saying Pischetti. Right. Okay. My, my three-year-old last night, he, he woke up and, I, 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 and like some, some hour that's too late that I don't feel comfortable saying publicly, and as I was yet to go into bed, and I, so I went into his room to say goodnight to him, and he asks me if it's Shabbos, and I say, no, it's not Shabbos, and uh, it's, a, it's a weekday, and he says, so is it Shabbos? <laughs> and I say, no, it's not Shabbos, so he says, so then what is it? <laughs> and I said, well, it's, 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 it's Tuesday, because it's like, oh, okay. Right. So that's cute when you're three, but you imagine like an adult, like, like what day is it? Shabbos? No, it's not Shabbos. It's weekday. So what is it? It's Shabbos? There's a cognitive problems there if you're having that kind of conversation as an adult. It needs to be age appropriate. Fine. Um, plus, I got the opportunity to stay cute with my kids. So. so, as a creation, it makes a certain kind of sense that we can understand how much that Hashem is greater than us, being that He's the creator, right? He created us, we're under obligation towards Him then. Um, he can do things that we can't do. He does them in a wondrous way we can barely fathom, blah, 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 right? So using creation to kind of um, generate a sense of God's greatness and our relative smallness towards Him, right? That's something a creation can do. But to really appreciate how God, God, that God's being is totally beyond what creation is, right? That we, that the, what it means for God to be real basically renders creation unreal. Like, you can't really get that on your own, can you? Like, we can talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, but the only point you're really going to get that is if you have to kind of experience it for yourself. Right? I, I will illustrate this with... with uh, an important idea. None of you are parents yet, I'm assuming. You've seen parents? You've seen parents do things that you know you don't think your parents should do? And I'm sure the thought crosses your mind that you will not do those things because obviously that's not the right way to parent a child. Okay. What's missing? The experience. And there are certain things that no amount of explaining it, right? Like the way children touch you in such a deep way, positively and negatively, when they're your own children, it, you can talk and talk and talk and talk, but if you haven't experienced it, you don't really get it. And the way children can, can make their parents' lives the most amazing thing with the simplest, smallest thing, and then conversely, the children get under their parents' skin in a way that like, you're like, how could a person just lose it? <laughs> um, and again, I'm not trying to justify or anything else, but I, I'm just thinking that's an important thing. Okay? So there's a way in which to have a genuine sense that, the rea- that God's real in a way that, it, that a creation is not real, fundamentally. You kind of have to experience that or sense it. You can't explain it. You can't reflect or do his bonuses in Hebrew to get to that place. You have to be shown it. Does that make sense? Okay. So before the Jewish people left Egypt, what did they have to do? They had to, break, they had to come to the realization that Hashem is great and they are small. How do they come to that realization? 
as creations. That. And in his creations, they have a sense that, that Hashem is greater than them because Hashem creates the world so they are under obligation towards Hashem, that Hashem can do things they can't do, Hashem does things in ways that we can't even fathom, etc., etc., etc. And that creates a tremendous amount of loyalty, deference, fealty, awe, in reference to Hashem. But at the end of the day, there's still somewhat of a sense that like, I am significant and I'm playing a role and, 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 and I have to serve him. So Hashem is greater than me, but I'm like the candle and he's like the sun. And I'm like the subject and he's like the king. What happens at midnight when Hashem reveals himself is that the Jewish people become exposed to a deeper truth, which is that the re- Hashem's reality is such that everything other than Hashem is rendered unreal. And that realization is what makes it possible for them to actually transcend the limitations of a person, who transcend the limitations of a creation, and ultimately be able to receive the Torah. So there's a kind of smallness we can bring to a realization of, to ourselves, and there's a smallness that we have to be shown. We cannot, we cannot come to it on our own. There's a smallness that we can come to on our own. We can reflect, we can work to come to see Hashem as greater and ourselves as smaller by, by, by anchoring ourselves in God created us. And what, that, what does that mean? And then there's a deeper truth that we have to be shown, which is God is real in a way that makes everything else, relatively speaking, unreal. And that, unless you've experienced it, you can't really know what that is. And it's that second thing as at that second stage where we truly have left the limitations of being a person. And so what happens is like this. Before Hashem reveals Himself, Hashem tells us we have to work on seeing, him, seeing Hashem as big and us, relatively speaking, as small. We have to have what is called, this is a technical term now, I'm going to throw it in, what's called yiratata, or the lower fear. Okay? By the way, the Hasidic term for seeing Hashem as big and yourself as small is called yira which is usually translated as? Fear. Fear. Okay. So, and after midnight, when Hashem has revealed himself, the Jewish people discover that Hashem is big and they are small, but for a totally different reason, because he is real in a way that everything else is therefore unreal. He is true in a way that everything else is now hollow and empty. What part of that reality can like actually sit with a person? One second. What I want to do is I want to keep teaching the class until the end and not answer that question. I would like to reference the introductory part of yesterday's class, though. Remember? The three ways we're going to take this idea? Okay. So I'm going to finish the class and then I'm going to leave the three things. And you're going to have to, you know, I don't know, have a forbidding with your friends about it or something. Okay. So that experience is called Yira Ilah, the upper fear. So the experience of being, the experience of recognizing that someone is a king, we would call that Yira Tata. The experience of smallness one has being the presence of a righteous person at Sadiq, we would call that Yira Ilah. The difference being, you know, if there's, you know, again, as great as the king is, I still have my, my small little space where I'm important on my level. He's just greater than me. Whereas in the year of Elah, his, his significance, his reality is such that, that that's it. Like I'm left with nothing. Right? When a person discovers that the righteous person lives a truly transcendent life, they don't feel that their life is really a, a life one can be proud of anymore. Because they're, they're, you know, crass, animalistic, whatever. Okay, now, could you have the experience of recognizing that Hashem is great and you are small and therefore you are under obligation towards Him, that He is incredibly powerful in ways that you can't or not, that He can do things you can't even fathom, and you can feel really small, and this just makes you miserable. You feel resentful that God 
that you're under this obligation to God. You feel resentful that there's somebody that much more powerful than you. Is that possible? Yeah. Is it possible that you could recognize those things and not be resentful and accept it and see it has its role? It's also possible. Is it possible that you could feel that the greatest thing that ever happened to you is to discover that you have obligations to your creator and that your creator can do things you cannot do and that your creator can do things you can't even fathom? Could you feel like that is the most, that is the most um, significantly positive revel- experience or, 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 or realization you've had in your life? Is that also possible? And eating matzah is meant to help us feel that way. In other words, not to help us convince us of the facts, but to help us embrace as having intrinsic value that lower year, that sense of smallness that is, comes from comparing ourselves to Hashem and realizing that as great as we are, He is always greater. As significant as we are, He is always much more significant. And when you realize that and you feel that way, how do you feel about doing God's commandments? How do you feel about obeying him? Do you feel that that's a, that you feel that that's a, that's a great privilege, it's a great honor, that's something, right? And you'll be very invested in doing it, right? And by the way, would that make you feel more or less significant that you've been given that incredible task? Right? In fact, you might feel so significant, you might feel that um, because you've been given this tremendous responsibility by God and you've been privileged with, with this, with that, that such an awesome and great being is counting on you for something, that, that makes you really important. So important that you start to think that your life revolves around you. After all, you are God's special agent. You are God's messenger. You are God's emissary. And slowly but surely, this sense of God's greatness and your smallness can transform into a sense of your own personal significance. And so what happens is that your sense of smallness in the face of God becomes a sense of personal arrogance. That's the same way that like the dough that becomes matzah can also become chametz. So what do you have to do to make sure that your sense of God's smallness remain, sorry, your sense of your smallness and God's greatness stays a sense of your smallness and doesn't turn into self-aggrandizement. So remember we spoke about how they had to guard the, hum, the matzah and make sure it didn't become chametz? Mm-hmm. One of the issues with this kind of what's called the year tata, the lower fear, that sense that I recognize how great God is and how small I am, is that that, that has this feedback loop. Well, then I am very significant because I'm a creation of God with a divine purpose, that God trusts me. And not that any of that is false, but, the, but what really is supposed to be the background can become the foreground. If you, is, is, is anyone ever like um, you do this if you're like actually in, in a room also but it's, it's more interesting to do it if you're like outside at the park look at something close by like look at it and like take that in as like an image and then look at something much further away what happens what you're out of focus right so it turns out when you focus on one thing the other thing becomes out of focus they're both part of the same scene, but what is the focus of the scene? What is, where is your attention at? If it's about my responsibilities to Hashem, Hashem's ability to do what I cannot do, Hashem's ability to do what I can't fathom, that He can do all this effortlessly, right? That I am a creature in His world with given purpose by Him. What should the focus on all of that be is His significance, right? Even though that does confer upon me some significance. But the significance that I feel should be kind of the hazy, fuzzy in the background. It's part of the picture, but it's not the focus of the picture. And that's that matzah that they eat before midnight. The matzah they eat before midnight is it's God is the authority. God is in charge. I am the one who has to fulfill my mission. Right? The matzah was commanded. We have to go and eat, and, and eat it. Right? And there's a goal here. The goal here is, is coming to a more correct understanding of God, a proper relationship with God. But I have to be careful that this doesn't get corrupted and ends up that God just becomes the thing that legitimizes my personal significance. I had a student many years ago in the men's program, um, and um, we were having a conversation. 
and he was complaining about how like, he, he doesn't he doesn't do enough and he doesn't he's not you know he's not, not not observant enough and he's not learning enough whatever like very like you know and I told him after all of this uh, you know saying how like he has to work harder and he's not you know he's he's, he's not holding where he where, where where God really wants and he's not you know all this kind of stuff I told him that he's extremely arrogant and self absorbed. And he says, what do you mean? Like, it's all about, you know, what God wants from me. He says, no, 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 You're really arrogant and you're really self-absorbed. And, but as a human being, human beings need many things. One of the things they need to have a sense that they're purposeful, right? That they're achieving something. And so in your mind, the only possible thing that isn't significant enough to grant you legitimacy and to make your life worthwhile is God Almighty himself. And not only that, you have to have a bit of a Messiah complex. Like you have to be serving God in this kind of central, all-important way. Otherwise, it's not good enough for you. And therefore, if you can't achieve perfection, you're down on yourself. And that is the, the, the danger of the lower fear, the danger of this, the, of this smallness is that, yes, God is significant and I am insignificant. But my insignificance is cashed out in my service of him, which makes I'm significant. I'm gaining significance from him. And so it's very easy that this gets wrapped up and I become the center of it. And this is like the dough that you have to make sure that it's matzah and it doesn't become chametz. And if you can do that, you're now in a space, you're now in a place where Hashem can take you out of Egypt. A person who has done what they can to recognize that they are small because they are a creation of God. And God is great because they're the creator of that creation in whatever way, shape, or form without it getting corrupted and turning into God is the source of my personal significance because the focus is not my personal significance. That's a person who their deference to Hashem, their submission to Hashem, it makes them receptive to Hashem taking them out of Egypt. Makes it possible for Hashem to pull them out. The whole sentence? That makes them receptive and possible for him to take them out. Which part? Okay. I, I'll say the idea again. I just don't know exactly what wording I used. Right? So if a person works to understand in a genuine way and to embrace and to see as an intrinsic good that Hashem is the creator and I'm the creation, that makes Hashem truly significant and me, relatively speaking, insignificant. And whatever significance I have is merely in the purpose and role that I serve in his world, right? And I should feel privileged and honored with that, but I should be humbled by that. If they can get to a place where they see that as an intrinsically positive thing and a valuable thing without it becoming a source of personal arrogance, they're now in a place that they're ready to leave Egypt. They're now in a place where Hashem has something to kind of latch on to to schlep them out of Mitzrayim. This responsibility, like, in that, Definition exists at all on the other level? On which level? Uh, the higher level. No, no, no. I'm going to contrast that. On the other hand, once Hashem reveals that He is real in a way that a creation can never be real, is there any place for you to have any responsibilities towards Hashem? Is there any place for you to have a service to Hashem? Are you even playing a role in Hashem's grand... Like the whole... Just like framing it as responsibility seems like you're lying to yourself at the lower level. Like it's not, in truth, you don't really, like why, why are you telling yourself you're Well, are, are you, you are, you are making an assumption, which is that one of these levels is true and the other level is false. Could they both be true? I'm asking you as a theoretical question. I'm not sure like, can you explain it. I'll say yes, but it's hard to see how like, being responsible and not being responsible and having no place responsibility can exist. Okay. okay. Fine. So what we're going to do is like this. I'm going to quickly now summarize the two levels of matzah and how they kind of frame Hashem's revelation at midnight. And then I'm going to make it more complicated. Okay. So number one, Hashem says, look, if you want me to take you out of Egypt, you need to embrace submitting to me. You need to feel that that surrendering to God is the most intrinsically positive thing you could do. And that means you need to recognize God's greatness and your smallness, right? That's purposefully directed. God is exerting his authority over us, right? We have an active role to play and we have to make sure that we keep the focus on 
our service of him, our deference to him, and not the side effect of that, although that side effect is real, that therefore we have a certain significance because we have responsibility towards him, right? He's, we're being entrusted with something. To keep that in the background, it's there, it's important, but it's not the focus. And so what do we have? We have, it's a commandment, God's authority, if it's directed as a purpose, directed towards a purpose, we have an active role to play, we have to make sure it doesn't become chametz, and the, the word matzah is missing the letter vav. The letter vav looks like a line. It's drawn from going up to the top, drawn down. And the idea is that the vav Kabbalistically represents divine revelation, meaning this is the deference, the surrendering, the embracing of God's greatness and our smallness that happens before God reveals himself. It's without the vav, without the revelation. And once we are in that vulnerable, that open place, we can receive the revelation. When we receive the revelation, now something different occurs. There's a, there's, we're, we're, we're shown the truth that Hashem is real in a way that nothing else could ever be real. And in that sense, there, anything other than God just can't truly be significant. We have no purpose we need to achieve. Right? And so the dough just cannot rise. It cannot become chametz. It by default is matzah, but the matzah is no longer a mitzvah. It's just the, the consequence of the truth of being manifest. And so these two different matzahs are actually in a certain sense, as what I think we're touching on, they are in a certain sense opposites. Could you say again the second matzah? The second matzah is Hashem has revealed that he is real in a way that nothing else could ever be real. And if that is revealed to you, at that point, can you see anything as significant other than Hashem? Even the idea that you have a mission and a role to play. Because, and what, in the world? But the world doesn't have any really significance. The world doesn't, re- doesn't have reality the way God does. Your, your standard has been raised to such a high level, such a transcendent level, that your sense is that everything else is shallow, hollow, and empty. I'm saying those three differences. And so therefore, there's no commandment of God. The matzah is just a, a byproduct. And the mat, the dough just could not become chametz. Not you have to do something to prevent it from being chametz. And that matzah has a vav. It's after the revelation. And it's, it was, and it's at that point when the Jewish people experience that, at that point they are free from the limitations. And then they can actually journey towards Harsinai and receive the Torah. Okay. So there is a way in which we surrender to Hashem through recognizing His greatness and recognizing our responsibility and our duty towards him. That's the first matzah. And there's a way in which we are um, completely taken over by Hashem's truth and his reality to the point that nothing captures our interest, nothing seems significant. Even the notion that we are doing something and have a mission, have a purpose, and have a role to play, even that was something we move beyond that. By the way, this is reflected in many areas of Judaism. For instance, in Shemona Esrei, before we start Shemona Esrei, we say the Pasuk, Hashem Sfasai Tiftach, Ufi Hashem, open my lips and my mouth will say your praises. And one of the reasons why we do that is that when one has come face to face with the reality of God, the idea that you could even ask for something goes away. So you need Hashem to kind of do the asking through you, if it's going to happen at all. Now, what you should realize is that on the one end, these two matzahs are kind of thematically related, right? It's about recognizing Hashem's greatness and our relative smallness and embracing that as an intrinsically positive thing, right? Not resenting it, not just merely tolerating it. But there's this obvious conflict between them. There's obvious tension, right? The lower matzah, it's giving us purpose and meaning and significance, and that could be corrupted. And the upper matzah is not like that at all. Now, the matzah has the same letters as the Hebrew word chametz. Are you familiar with this idea? Matzah, if you spell matzah, it's mem tzadik hey. And chametz is ches, tzadik, ches mem tzadik. The only difference is the ches and the hey, which is basically the same letter, except that the hey has a tiny little break. Yeah, okay. Now, how do you spell the Hebrew letter hey? The Hebrew letter hey? Hey, hey. Hey, hey. In other words, every hey, we spell the Hebrew letter hey by putting a hey, and then 
There's hay afterwards. Sound hay at the end. Like pay is pay hay. And um, what other letters are like that? Um, not all letters are like that, but some of the letters are like that. So hay is spelled hay hay. And so there's an idea that hay has this doubling to it. That every hay contains another hay within it. And so since matzah and chametz is differentiated by the letter hay, the smallness of the matzah is really captured by the letter hay. And the idea that there are two hays means there's these two types of matzahs, the upper matzah, the lower matzah, the matzah before midnight, the matzah after midnight. Now, what's interesting about the idea that hay, that the word letter hay contains another hay, is that means that you could have these two matzahs together, even though they're in conflict, even though there's a tension, they somehow can coexist. And this is important because when we eat matzah before midnight, our matzah is about the matzah before midnight or the matzah after midnight. The matzah that helps us enables us to leave Egypt or the matzah that comes as a result of being freed from Egypt? It's both. And the way we see this is that we eat matzah before midnight as a mitzvah. By the way, you have to eat your matzah the Seder night before midnight. Halachic midnight. And when we say the Haggadah, we say that the matzah is because the dough didn't have time to rise. So the matzah we eat is a blending of these two things. Now, how is it possible that the two things can coexist? So for this, I'm going to teach you a very general idea in Chassidus. Okay. The general idea is as follows. The ideal form of everything is the form that was received from God, not what you create yourself. So if you're really going to love God, that love has to come from God. If you're really going to take joy in a mitzvah, that joy has to be granted to you by God. If you're really going to have a sense of God's greatness in your smallness, in a genuine way, it's going to have to be given to you by God. In other words, the real true version of any kind of a spiritual experience vis-a-vis God is really itself a godly divine revelation to the person. If you are, if you are creating your own experience of love, your own experience of joy, your own experience of trust, your own experience of faith, whatever it is, it's not the ideal version of that. The ideal version of that is when God reveals himself in the experience of the person and it takes on a particular form, the form of love, the form of awe, the form of whatever. Now, if that's true, then what should I do? I should just pray to God and have him really group, like grant me experiences of love and trust and faith and blah, 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 blah. Is that what we do? No. So I'll give you an analogy. Let us say you want to go to a comedy club. Why would you want to go to a comedy club? A kosher comedy club, let's say, it's because funny. it's funny. So why don't you just tell yourself some jokes? Because <laughs> it's, it's more funny when someone else says the jokes, right? Right. The humor has to be given to you. You don't create the humor yourself, right? Make sense? Like I want to, ha- I, I want, I want to have some, some, I want to have some good laughs right now. So I'm going to start telling myself jokes, right? So it doesn't really work that way, right? If you really want to. <laughs> what? <laughs> but even I mean, even if you can, even if you can do that to some degree or another, it's not the same as going to someone else and having someone else say jokes, right? That's really funny, right? So you just need the other person to be funny, right? If the other person is really funny, right, then you'll be like rolling over laughing, right? You know? Good. Okay. So now, if you were to ask the comedian, since the comedian is the one who's making everything so funny, right? They're the source of the humor. Does it matter who the audience is? After all, it's the, it's the comedian producing the humor, right? So does it matter who the audience is? No. Yeah. Yes. Why? Well, because if the comedian says something that, like, it, when you go, yes. Yeah. Like, it, it depends on, like, what you say to someone. You could say, like, a pet, like, a pet rock. Some people are like, okay, and, and some people are like, Right. So, I mean, obviously there are certain things like you need to speak the same language, cultural reference, stuff like that. But then there's this other important thing. It's called a sense of humor. If you try to, you know, do a comedy act for a bunch of people who are lacking in their sense of humor, it's not going to work very well, right? So you, so, the, so you need your own... So when you go to the comedy club, you need to bring your own sense of humor, right? Right? Does this make sense? You, 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 you. The comedian can provide the humor, but you need your own sense of humor. <laughs> okay, and let's move on to a different topic, yeah? 
Let's say that you want to learn very profound ideas. Now, if you just sit around all day and thinking and contemplating and pondering stuff, are you going to come up with profound, deep insights? Mm. Unlikely. You might, but most people not, right? You would like somebody who already has some knowledge of some deep, profound insights to share them with you, right? So if that's the case, then all you do is find such a person and have them share them with you, and voila, you'll have these deep, profound insights because they've shared them with you, right? So does that mean if you want to share deep, profound insights, you can just share them with anybody? No, those people, if you, if you want to receive deep, profound insights, your mind needs to be attuned to kind of deep thinking, right? You need to be interested in those insights. You need to be comfortable in, in, in working in some kind of abstraction, right? There's a basic idea to receive something within yourself. You need to have that quality within yourself already. If you want to, if you want to be able to enjoy beautiful music, you have to have a sense of, a sense of hearing. If you want to be able to enjoy a beautiful painting, if there's a sense of sight, right? Make sense? If you want, to, if you want the humor to wash over, you not have a sense of humor. So even though you are not generating those things, you need to have the proper, what's called the chesedis kli, or vessel to receive those things. How does that work with God? I'm about to tell you. If God is going to reveal the truth of his greatness in the most absolute sense, and therefore you are going to, be, as a result of that, experience how truly great he is and truly small you are. You need to have some part of yourself which is receptive to that. What's the part of you that's receptive to that? The part of you that already sees God as great and yourself as small. In other words, what is the part of you which is able to, what, what is it that makes a person capable of experiencing the yir ilah, the upper fear? The yir in other words, when we work on, through our own efforts of coming to a realization of how great God is and how small we are, and coming to that with a positive embracing of that, we have made for our, within ourselves a place which is receptive to the truth that God reveals. If we don't have that yiratata, meaning we don't have a sense of his greatness in our smallness in a way that we we, we embrace it, we cherish it, we value it. If he were to reveal his absolute truth, we would not experience our smallness. We would just feel obliterated, overwhelmed. It would wash over us without us realizing it happened. Right? You can tell a joke and there's one guy in the room who just doesn't have a sense of humor, doesn't get it, what's so funny? Everyone's, everyone else is laughing. Right? You could have the most profound idea explained and there's one person in the class who doesn't get it because they're just too, too crass and, 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 and materialistic in their thinking. And so they just don't, they don't get it. It just sounds like gibberish to them. Hashem could reveal himself at midnight and reveal that he is real and nothing else is real and all, this, all the wickedness of the Egyptians is vanquished. And a person could be completely unaffected by that because they haven't cultivated a sensitivity to God's greatness and their smallness. So it's the lower fear that serves as a vessel, as a, as a place within ourselves that we can then experience the upper fear. And so the matzah before midnight becomes the thing that contains the revelation of the matzah after midnight. And this is a general rule in Hasidus, is that the real version of things is what's revealed to us by God, but you can't have that revelation from God unless you have the corresponding thing in yourself. So I'll give you just a slightly different example. Doing a mitzvah is supposed to be a joyous thing, right? The real joy in doing a mitzvah is not something you generate, it's something God grants you. So if God grants you, you could just like wait around for God to grant you the joy of doing mitzvahs. And the answer is no, you can't. What has to happen? You have to cultivate your own joy in the privilege of doing a mitzvah. And then that creates the vessel, the place within yourself where the joy that God grants you can, can, can take place. So what we're doing is we are making spiritual experiences of, of our own which become the container that contains the spiritual experience that God grants us. And in this case, it's this notion called Yira, or Hashem's greatness and our relative smallness. But we can't rely, though, just on the lower fear. Right. Like, we can't let it, like... But we have to be careful, and this thing, because it's our doing and it's our significance in doing it, right? we have to be careful that it becomes about what it's supposed to receive rather than itself, right? The main point of this cup is not the paper, but the empty space for the coffee. The main point of my 
learning how to embrace submitting to God and, and accepting my responsibility towards him and being awed by his greatness, etc., etc., is not that I am fulfilling my mission, but I'm making space in myself where God's true greatness can be revealed. And so the idea is that eating the matzah actually contains both of these elements. Okay? And because we are eating matzah after giving the Torah, we can have them kind of happen simultaneously. Right? That's why, whereas the Jewish people were yet to receive the Torah, they actually have to have them kind of in order before midnight, after midnight. So now, does that mean practically speaking, when I eat matzah, all of a sudden I am filled with this overwhelming sense that I embrace God's greatness as understood and seen through creation and my smallness towards relative to him, which then makes me open to the true greatness of God, that he is real and where everything else is unreal. Does that just magically happen when I eat matzah? No. And yes, it does. <laughs> Going again, can something be happening to you without you having conscious experience of it? Yes. Mm-hmm. That was one of the explanations, right? Can I look at the eating of matzah as symbolic of these ideas? Absolutely. And can I maybe figure out a way in which this, what we've learned about actually does take place in my life in some level and connect that to the eating of matzah? That's something else to work on. So what that means is that matzah is about making this transition from God is big and I am small as being a negative to God is big and I am small as a positive but in the deeper sense, not just that it's a positive thing, there's an aspect of that which is my doing, and there's an aspect of that which God reveals to me. And what I'm doing has to be focused to become a place within myself where what God reveals to me can really be accepted, really be absorbed. That the one matzah becomes the vessel to receive, to hold the other matzah. Like the one hey has the other hey implicit in it. You spell out the word hey. Hey, hey. So yes. one, one matzah is like creating the vessel for you to hold it and the other matzah is filling the vessel. That's right. Kabbalistically, this is the idea of a vessel and the light that fills it. Mm-hmm. If you like Kabbalistic language. So that's what was intended to be one class of matzah but became you know, two classes of matzah. I guess it's like the hay, right? It has a secret, separate hay built inside. Okay, tomorrow we're going to learn about the four cups of wine and contrast that with matzah. We're also going to learn about...